Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. the Hilo, the weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Dolly, you haven't had your finest few hours, have you? I've had a disastrous four days, really. Let me set the scene for you. Friday, I had a spectacularly shit day, like technicolour layers of shit throughout the whole day. And then thought it's fine Saturday I'm heading to Ireland for Boris Festival my favourite literary festival where I'm going to speak do two talks and go listen to lots of people meet lots of lovely people have a wonderful time get up early Saturday morning have a shower pack order a cab cab's waiting outside go to get my passport passport isn't there rang nearly everyone I know who was all they were all asleep because it was Saturday morning to check whether they have seen my passport. I know, I, I, I was aware something was up when I got a text going, have we taken our passport to any <laughs> meetings recently? And I was like, oh no, I know what's happened. So then I was like, right, I need to just get on that flight. And it's, it's you know, not hugely far-flung flights. There must be a way of doing this. So I checked with Aer Lingus and they said, you can have... Laura's waiting for me at Heathrow. She said, I've spoken to women at Aer Lingus. We checked online. You can have photo, work photo ID. So I decide... I'm completely... I didn't sleep at all Friday night. So I decided it with very little sleep. The best solution would be to... First of all, ring the Sunday Times and see if I could go to the Sunday Times office and get a photo ID. Um, They told me that they couldn't do that because the security people weren't there, so they couldn't print it out into a card. And, you know, I'm also just a freelancer, so they couldn't do that for me. I then decided to go to the BBC, eight in the morning, get to the Wogan house, start sobbing to the receptionist. (laughs) I, uh, I I was quite generous with my description of my connection to the BBC. I said, I'm a freelancer for the BBC, by which I mean I've been a guest on Steve Wright in the afternoon <laughs> and Women's Hour once. And she was like, right, we'll check you on the system and see what we can do. So I just was like sitting and weeping in the corner of Wogan House. And she like rang her manager and there was, she was so helpful. There was this like really long conversation about how they couldn't find me on the system. At that point I was like, well, maybe I'm not technically a freelancer. I'm just, <laughs> just a sort of passing chancer. She was like, right, well, we could get you like a visitor's pass, maybe printed out, definitely not on a card. It would just be on a piece of paper. And I was like, yeah, that's perfect. If you just print me one of those, that would be good. That would be great. And then... I'll go straight to Heathrow, don't spare the horses. The manager was then called down and only in retrospect with clear eyes, I can see how funny this is. He brought a security guard with him. (laughs) Because he obviously thought I was just a complete mad woman. 
And he was like, right, what's going on? And I explained it to him. At one point, I was feeling so fragile because of the last week anyway, I said to him. And the problem is no one will give me a photo work ID because I don't belong to anyone. Oh, I was like, I'm completely on my own as a freelancer, so no one will represent me. And he was like, with all due respect, a visitor, a paper visitor pass for the BBC is not going to get you through security of Heathrow. So anyway, I couldn't go to Boris Festival. Uh, then I went to the passport office. That was another wasted hour. Couldn't get to Boris Festival. Had to Lauren's cancel. Still Lauren's still there. Lauren's still there. She's still there in the Wagamama Terminal 5 eating their lovely Kedgeri breakfast. And um, had to cancel my holiday this week. I'm so sorry. It's just like, you know when you have those weeks... You put on your lucky earrings, though. Are you doing, like, conspicuous dressing? <laughs> and you dress to be the woman you want to feel? Oh, my God, I totally am. Because you're looking quite chic today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, trying to look like a together woman. It's just, I was thinking so much about Philippa Perry's book as it was happening, and I was thinking about how Zadie reacts to things at the moment. Because there was a moment in the passport office where... Something deep and primal in me just wanted to do exactly what a toddler would do. I wanted to just sit... I thought you meant Zadie Smith. I was like, I thought that was like a what would Zadie do? <laughs> no. no, actually, you just want to scream. Your toddler daughter. lie on the floor and scream. But you know that where you just want to put everything down and sit down in the middle and of a crowded area. People... <laughs> and it's all sorted. And someone just carries you home and gives you some mashed banana. So anyway, that was my weekend. Oh, Dolly. Can you give me some good news to cheer me up? Well, I was going to go straight into some news after another night of poor sleep on uh, my part. Experts are now claiming that sleep tracking sleep tracking apps can worsen rather than improve your insomnia. Oh, really? Why is that? Obsessive. Oh, you do look a little bit cheered, even though it's not cheering news. <laughs> um, Guy Leschliner, a sleep disorder specialist and consultant at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital in London, says that we are seeing devastation about sleep deprivation exacerbated by apps. I get devastated about sleep deprivation and I don't even use apps. And I can fully imagine how apps would make you really pathologise. Yeah, totally. Something I think was really interesting is when he said that increasingly we're seeking to metricise our life using technology to track how many steps we've taken, how many friends we have and how we spend our money. That's a really interesting concept. Yeah, I think we're all complete control freaks. I think it's a real symptom of Western sensibility and I think it's making us go fully mad well, Vaughan Bell a neuroscientist at USL added UCL added concerns about sleep deprivation further reduce actual sleep I agree with that entirely that's why I've never done a sleep app it's why I refuse to look at the time mm. when I can't sleep because that's, otherwise you that's do that thing going, oh my god I've only got three hours left now yeah. you don't need an app to tell you if you've slept well no I think you know also Eva Wiseman a few months back wrote this great piece about the kind of co-opting of sleep and the, the search for the perfect yeah, the sleep. And, yeah, all the products that are being flogged to us for uh, sleep perfection. And I just think making anything that's that instinctive and primal something that brands can hop on board with and tell you how to do is, is quite dangerous. Speaking of that, I've been wondering where my Bose noise, uh, white noise emitting headphones have got to. <laughs> I ordered them at great expense two weeks ago, having read another sleep aid article. Oh, really? Yeah. I, yeah, I'm trying everything at the moment. Um, I know you think you've had a bad week, but I think Michael Goat's had a worse week. He, I think he probably has, actually. I think he definitely wants to sit down and... <laughs> middle of the floor and demand some mashed in banana for uh, coke gate he recently admitted to trying cocaine several times in his youth and is now under pressure to quit the tory leadership race i think if dc could survive the pig then yeah i mean it will come as a surprise to no one that i found the reaction to this pearl clutching 
I just found it quite irritating in the, in the week where Jeremy Hunt, who is also a potential leader, who wants to restrict the time frame for legal abortions. It just felt to me like my whole timeline was completely flooded with people up in arms about the fact that Michael Gove did a few lines of GAC 20 years ago rather than... Yeah. Rather, it just felt like such watch the birdie politics. It's just, I didn't it's, know Jeremy Hunt had said that. Yeah, it's really that's frightening. His, that's his and response to what's going on in America. He said, he said that he believes that it's everyone has very personal... Um, beliefs and reactions about abortion. His one is that it should be reduced to 12 weeks. There's been some really important information circulating online about what the knock-on effect of that restriction will do for women. He is a super health secretary, so I always really value his opinions. Yeah, Adam Kay tweeted saying this is another thing that qualifies him for the worst worst health secretary ever. So I don't know. Look, I'm not undermining... I think that it's quite normal that young people experiment with drugs when they're younger. I know that with cocaine, there's a massive ethical implication there, which I don't think is something that should be glossed over. But really, during this week, like, and everything that was going on in the news, it just really wasn't the top of my biggest concerns. Totally. But potentially good news for plastics and the planet... Waitrose is trialling a refillable zone in one of its stores where customers will be able to fill their own containers with 28 products, including pasta, rice, lentils, cereal and dry fruit. Feels mad that this hasn't, no one's done this already, I think. They're trialling the shop in Oxford until August with a view to potentially roll it out nationally. M&S, on the other hand, are in trouble this week for selling ready peeled garlic cloves in plastic pots, despite pledging to reduce their plastic waste. I slightly despair at this, not just because of the plastic waste, but why do people need their garlic peeled, already peeled? It feels like something, it's like a detail that you'd have in years and years that Russell T Davis would put in a dystopian script. Look, I'd take chopped garlic if it came to me like that. Actually, I don't eat garlic at all because it's not good for IBS. But the plastic container seems madness. I do love that Waitrose are trialling this in their Oxford branch. The Oxford branch of Waitrose. Is there a more middle-class plastic (laughs) And some more good news for fellow woo-woos like me. A poll this week showed that 71% of atheists... I think this is an enormous statistic and 92% of agnostics believe in an element of the supernatural such as karma astrology or reincarnation I just find this absolutely riveting I think it's I think the gravitation towards the supernatural that I just am seeing in small ways in so many unexpected places I think that we will look back at this period in history and I include myself in that you know that I like see psychics and very much believe in astrology but I do think we'll look back on this period of time as a, as a, a, as a, as a Western race that was in a total state of crisis with the collapse, basically, of um, marshalling religion. I'm not an atheist, but I believe in karma. I definitely, like, I feel like you get out what you put in. Mm. And I treat people a certain way because I want to be treated like that. Mm. Well, it's hard to know, really, how supernatural that notion is. Yeah, is. I don't know if it's actually super... It's, it's more just, like, actually, uh, I think a cultural quite... mantra for yeah. me rather than, like, me actually thinking there's something in the ether. And actually, there's something quite Catholic about that way of thinking, isn't there? Everything I do, you just like to relate it to the fact <laughs> no, that I'm but it is. Catholic. You do good, good comes back. You had a guinea pig when you and I. I'm so Catholic. <laughs> 
More good news comes in the form of Sally Challen walking free from court on Friday after a judge ordered that she should not face a retrial for killing her husband with a hammer in 2009. With the support of Justice for Women, Challen's sons have been campaigning for the release of their mother, who killed her estranged husband after decades of psychological abuse known as coercive behaviour. Challen was sentenced to nine years and four months for manslaughter, which she had already served, and so she walks free. Many other women who are victims of abuse, as I was, are in prison today serving life sentences. They should not be serving sentences for murder, but for manslaughter, she said afterwards at a press conference. Her son David tweeted, as a family, we are overjoyed at today's verdict and that it has brought an end to the suffering we've endured for the past nine years. Our story has become the landmark case. Society needs to recognise the true severity of coercive control. This is such good news for Justice for Women who have 10 other cases like Challenge that they're currently fighting for and the support of her sons is truly heartening. I saw someone tweet that it was proof that the model of toxic masculinity clearly had not trickled down mm. from father to sons mm. and it's testament to what a good mother she mm. it was and is mm. as well. Agreed, I think it's really great news. And a story from LA this week, a pedestrian version of Uber is now operating so that the city's residents never have to walk alone. The People Walker app puts users in touch with freelance walkers who charge $7 for half an hour's walking. I love this idea and I think it could be particularly useful for the elderly or the visually impaired or those who feel targeted or particularly vulnerable, which, as we will discuss later uh, on in this segment, is sadly still very much a reality for so many people i think it's a really really good idea i mean i've never heard of a freelance walker <laughs> tell you what i could have really done with did some try, freelance walking when i was did you try and get a photo card from the freelance walker <laughs> oh my god this year's birthday honours list from the Queen has been awarded and it included some brilliant women. Olivia Coleman won a CBE and activists Leila Hussein and Nimco Ali, who fight to end female genital mutilation, both received OBEs. Head teacher Elizabeth Carney Hayworth and her husband David, a retired police officer, also received OBEs for their work with children affected by domestic abuse through their charity Operation Encompass. A final tasty news morsel that's really satisfied me this week is that a humpback whale has been spotted in the Hudson River in New York. And this is cheering. Experts have suggested it's as a result of reduced pollution in the city's river. You are fast becoming this podcast whale correspondent. I think it's because I am this podcast whale. to end on before we move into the mailbag segment of this podcast I've been reading a book by the internet psychologist Natalie Nahai for something I'm writing called Webs of Influence the Psychology of Online Persuasion and in it she talks about the Streisand effect have you ever heard of the Streisand effect? Is it the effect that you have on people when you do karaoke because if so I'm very familiar with it No it's not Coined in 2003, the effect describes how efforts to suppress a piece of online information can backfire and have the adverse effect. And it's named after Barbara Streisand, who sued the California Coastal Records Project, which maintains an online photographic archive of almost the entire California coastline, on the grounds that its pictures included shots of her cliffside Malibu mansion and thus invaded her privacy. She lost the case and pictures of her home went viral before she filed her lawsuit image 3850 had been downloaded from the coastal records project's website only six times um two of those downloads being by streisand's attorneys but as a result of the case public knowledge of the picture in her house 
greatly increased and more than 420,000 people visited the site over the following month. I just thought it was such an interesting phenomenon that I think is increasingly applicable to online information now. Mm. And drawing attention to it, whether it's a bad tweet or a picture of your house being somewhere from a famous person, do you often make it worse? Mm. That is very interesting. What's in the mailbag this week, darling? We had a handful of fascinating emails from lawyers and listeners who work in prison reform talking about their perspectives on Kim Kardashian West's involvement in the Kevin Cooper case. A lawyer in California offered this perspective. I wanted to respond to one aspect of your thoughtful discussion about whether Kim Kardashian West should not have chosen to advocate for Kevin Cooper due to his prior convictions for rape and burglary. The punishments for his prior offences are not on the same scale as the death penalty. Typically, a person will receive a sentence of no more than a few years for burglary and from three to 14 years for rape, depending on the circumstances in California. From a legal perspective and an ethical one, no one deserves to die for a crime they did not commit just because of their prior convictions for lesser offences. There are no perfect defendants, just as there are no perfect plaintiffs in civil rights lawsuits, but we are all entitled to certain rights and protections no matter what. I see Kim Kardashian West's advocacy as upholding that principle. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it was um, me that raised the issue, should she be campaigning for someone that had been accused of rape? But you're right, like, in the eyes of the law, just because you committed one crime does not mean you committed another. So thank you for that contribution. One lawyer would like to see Kim Kardashian West donate the money to the Innocence Project rather than take up the case personally. I've been a lawyer for more than 20 years and in my view anything which brings the work of lawyers into popular focus in a halfway positive manner is a good thing. But Kim is not in a position to form a view about Mr Cooper's innocence based on one or even more meetings. These are complex issues and while she may have been persuaded of his innocence upon meeting him, this is not the legal test. Instead, she should donate money to the Innocence Project, which is committed to exonerating wrongly convicted people through the use of DNA testing. They would certainly benefit from funding and this would enable them to continue their work on a sound and considered basis. The fact that she chooses to run a personal high-profile campaign in this way makes me question whether her apparent need to be taken seriously is operating to cloud her judgment. I can only imagine how distressing it is for the family of the victims to have this case discussed by a person who has millions of followers. I can totally see why that listener suggested that. The Innocence Project does a lot of great work and they um, are armed with a lot more knowledge and scope, arguably, than uh, Kim is. A listener who works in prison reform thinks anything that draws attention to the failures of the judicial system is a good thing. Prisons aren't working and are rarely places of rehabilitation. They are violent, drug-filled, revolving doors. 60% of short-term prisoners return within a year. And we're sending people down for very little. Last year, 20 women went to prison for non-payment of a TV licence. We should judge a society by the way it treats its most vulnerable. And the people in prison are our most vulnerable. Half of women in prison have been victims of domestic violence. People of colour are disproportionately jailed. 40% of prisoners have diagnosed mental illnesses. 40%! Many came from care homes and foster care. We must be realistic about what creates social change. The spotlight. Political focus has pointed at the issues that are shouted about the loudest. Who gets the spotlight? Celebrities. Prison reform isn't a sexy or fluffy cause. If a celebrity wishes to be brave enough to shackle their reputation and platform to prison reform, then I, for one, welcome and thank them. Such a great email. And can I, again, point anyone keen to read more about why um, jails aren't working to check out Jailbirds by Mim Skinner, which is a brilliant book about um, working in a British prison. We also had lots of Hen Do Hell emails. 
Good I, change. <laughs> I love this one about a woman who is getting married and is frustrated about the fixation everyone else in her life has on her wedding plans. I wanted to say how much I love the discussion about weddings and Hindu parties. I'm engaged in getting married next April, and whilst this is and whilst this is obviously a very large life event, it's driving me crazy how many people around me seem to think it is my only life event now. After five years of incredibly hard work, I recently earned a doctorate in applied mathematics. At my celebratory dinner, my mother only wanted to talk about the upcoming wedding plans, bridesmaids, dresses, etc. It's incredibly frustrating to me that my other accomplishments get overshadowed by my wedding. Luckily, my partner is super supportive about my frustrations. It seems like just the nature of the beast of wedding culture now, and I really wish this wasn't the case. What have you been enjoying this week? <laughs> well, you haven't been enjoying much. What have you, <laughs> what have you been enjoying this week, Dolly? <laughs> I am loving a series on Netflix called Easy, which is a comedy anthology series exploring diverse characters in Chicago. And I think it's my favourite TV I've watched since Transparent. I haven't heard of it. I think it's... It seems to not have had huge amounts of coverage. It's a series that's written and directed by Joe Swanberg. And I can't describe how painful and realistic it is and also how current it is every time that I'm developing or pitching a tv show at the moment the thing that commissioners and producers are frothing at the mouth about is like why now why now what makes it 2019 and I just find that like such an impossible question to answer in the in a script about humans so often and I find it so crowbarred but this series I just like to say chaos (laughs) anxious chaos Um, this series manages to do it so seamlessly it just it's managing to traverse these like very very current anxieties in such a seamless way so one of the it's episodic so all the episodes focus on a particular person or a particular couple and it's really well woven through because um they're they're all living obviously in the same city so you occasionally see one character from a previous episode weave in as a cameo into another episode of a different character and I just I find that really satisfying and it's just deliciously done and every every episode as I said focuses on a different um, person and a different a different person or a different couple and it looks at their emotional journey and where they are in life but it also says something about a shared modern problem so the one that I watched last last night I'm still getting through all the episodes but the last one I watched last night was with Mark Maron who plays uh, a famous kind of uh, illustrator cartoonist who gets the news at the top of the episode that one of his former students who he had a sexual relationship with has written and created a graphic novel which accuses him of a kind of coercive Mm. power imbalance in their relationship. And watching this man, who's very archetypal, I think it's quite close to who Mark Maron is, to be totally honest. He plays it so well, this kind of totally, totally self-absorbed, narcissistic, but very funny and quite charming man. And you watch him go on this journey throughout this episode of having to really recognise what his actions have done 
to women that he's been involved with and having to really assess the currency of his power and his privilege that he has completely disregarded in the past. So that's a really amazing episode. There's another great episode about a woman who's uh, navigating online dating and it is incredibly realistic. And then for me, the most painful, painful and beautiful thread is about a couple with children, married couple who have opened up their marriage and it's about them muddling through kind of non-monogamy together. And I'm really, really fascinated by polyamory and it's something that I've tried to write about a number of times and every time I have, it's just felt completely unrealistic and um, very inaccessible. And this is the first depiction of a very ordinary couple, loving couple, trying to love each other while consensually loving others. And I just... It's just really, really believable and it addresses so many questions of contentment and and monogamy and long term love and how we negotiate that now in in modern in a modern world where people are living for such a long time. And uh, I think there is a real kind of contentment deficit within a lot of long term partnerships now. Do you ever watch Big Love? No. I never watched that either, but I wonder if you're interested in polyamory um, and the representation of it. I really am. That could be a good one to deep dive into. I feel like it was almost 10 years ago now. Oh, I'll go go watch it. Because I also... It's the same reason why I remember talking about it on the podcast. I wasn't in love with Wonderlust, but I still felt very drawn to it because it was exploring this stuff. And I do think that this is increasingly going to become a reality for more and more people and beyond that that plot point in it it's just a great exploration of of marriage and friendship and how those two things intersect and desire and intimacy and also the thing that this whole series explores which I don't know whether it's just where I am in my life right now that I find so fascinating is the nature of desire and the unfairness of desire how one, how you can love someone so deeply and not be attracted to them, and not be attracted to them, or that, or them not, or them will be very attracted to them, and something so ephemeral and so inexplicable means they don't feel it back about you, and are they obliged to feel it about you? And what's our sense of honor and loyalty to each other? There's a scene um, with the married couple that I didn't time it, but I think it's like one of the longest static scenes that I've seen on TV with both of them in a bar talking about how they got to this point of opening up their marriage and where they go from here that I just bawled throughout the whole thing it was so realistic one of the most painful discussions between um a couple that I've seen on tv such a realistic depiction to the point where I wonder it, it must be unscripted to a degree because it just felt so raw and instinctive um, and yeah, it's it's just so 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 good. I, oh, I can't wait to. Check I really that out. can't wait to hear what you think about it. I'm also loving the Pleasure Podcast, which continuing is, the theme. <laughs> yes, which is a new podcast hosted by writer and actor Naomi Sheldon, who's uh, a quite extraordinary writer and human. I think she wrote a one woman show called Good Girl that I talked about on the podcast a couple of years ago that I went to go see. Uh, So it's Naomi uh, who writes a lot about kind of intimacy and desire and sexual function doctor Anand Patel. And it's a series that explores the relationship we have to our bodies when it comes to sex, intimacy and pleasure. The first episode was with Laura Dodsworth, who is uh, a photographer who's 
recently published a book called Dina, right? Yeah. Dina, yeah. Yeah, it's all about the process of she photographed 100 uh, vaginas and it's all about our relationships to vulvas, both our own and culturally and sexually and how we see them. And really, it's a very, very intimate conversation, obviously. And the photos are very intimate. She, um, she wanted to really... Uh, capture a whole spectrum of what female sex looks like so that included um, post-birth, post-trauma, women menstruating, all different kinds of vulvas and then next to the photographs it's women talking about their their kind of relationship I just hate the phrase relationship to vagina but there's no other way to put it and all the kind of pleasure and joy and uh, pain and trauma and shame that's come with that and it's just a very honest conversation about something that I don't think we really talk about enough and certainly I think a lot of young women could benefit from hearing more about so uh, I really really enjoyed the candid nature and the curiosity in that conversation and I'm looking forward to all the other episodes. I talked about Emma Jane Unsworth last week on the High Low, her beautiful book Animals which I saw, thank you for your tweets and your Instagrams that loads of you are reading which makes me very happy uh, and the film adaptation which is out in August. She also wrote a piece this week um, that really did the rounds on social media and had a, everyone had a very very strong reaction to about her experiences with postnatal depression it's a beautiful piece, almost a short story um, that has moments of real dark humour and starts in this kind of very absurd way where she finds herself in a bit of a fog at a like a mini convention, the car mini convention and uh, kind of how, what that came to represent uh, of her inner turmoil and dissatisfaction with her own kind of life. And it's just a very, very powerful piece about the shame that she felt around postnatal depression, how the fear that she had about talking about it, about even writing about it, the fear that she had that somehow that negated her love for her child, which of course it didn't. And it's also very honest about her partnership with her husband and how she struggled with um, the default imbalance often in parenting and the emotional and you know actual load of parenting in heterosexual couples, a lot of heterosexual couples. And I just really recommend it because I just think the more airtime that we give to this stuff, as we say over and over again, the more it destigmatizes. I'd like to read a section from it. The worst of it was the sleep deprivation. My son was a bad sleeper from the start. There are not even words to describe the level of tiredness. Bone tired is the closest I can get, but my bones felt like they had dissolved along with my frontal lobe. I couldn't finish sentences. There is a reason sleep deprivation is used as torture. At night, in bed, I get flashes of bright white behind my eyes, bursts of adrenaline, I learn. The split second the baby starts crying. I run out of supermarkets, baskets abandoned in the aisle whenever he cries, dashing home in a panic, crying myself. But it becomes more than tiredness, more than baby blues. It calcifies into something deeper, more lethal. As the months go on and winter turns to spring, I get darker inside. I have to start working again. I want to start working again. I'm a self-employed writer and it hasn't come easy. But new mothers are not supported financially or holistically by the state or system. In fact, I feel actively discouraged. My husband is great, but I have become a person he doesn't know, a person who screams and shouts and whom he finds on her knees, sobbing in the kitchen as the baby naps. With no extended family nearby, I just have to keep working and not sleeping and feeling like I'm doing a shit job of the lot. 
When I allow myself to compare myself to other people, my pride clouds things. I feel like a loser for not coping. I lie to my health visitor. I lie to my friends. I'm lying to myself. I start overcompensating. I bake. I'm not a baker. I post happy pictures online. I do my best. I'm fine dance all over town. I want to look like a capable person, a modern woman, a successful feminist having it all her way. But slowly and surely, I'm breaking myself. And I just also want to take a moment to recognise how difficult it must be and how re-traumatising it must be for any woman talking about um, any of these kinds of experiences and what a service I think it is to actively place them in public discourse for others to relate to and learn from and benefit from. Yeah, I mean, there's so much about what she said there that speaks to me about my own experience. Mm. Um, And actually, I think that's a really interesting time for that piece to have gone viral because there's a new study in the New York Times... um, that similarly was getting a lot of traction this weekend about how giving the other parent the flexibility to use paid leave on the days that the mother needs extra support will make a significant difference to um, a mother's postpartum health Mm. and that's already being trialled in various countries and apparently you can really see it in the statistics about mental health so it doesn't mean just having those like two weeks or however long the, typically the father, I know that's not always the case but let's just say the one that's not the primary caregiver um is you get those kind of two weeks at the beginning or however long, and then that's sort of it. Whereas this would mean that, you know, if you've got either a stay-at-home working mother or a professional working mother, both working mothers, I know that um, there's a real campaign to, to show that all mothers are working yes, mothers. Yes, yes. Um, but the idea, and I've had this before, when you, if, you know, if you've had, because the thing is, it's like, as Emma Jane Husband said, there's sleep deprivation, but it's not, I'm one of a few people I know who the sleep deprivation wasn't just caused by the child, it was caused by my own brain because Mm. of things that were going on. Mm. So it's not always coming from the child, but I definitely have felt, and I'm sure many women have, that I've woken up in the morning and I'm like, oh my God, I I really need help. But my husband hasn't been in a position where he can just call up and say, I need to cash in one of my paid these days today. It's just not an option. You can do it if if it's like, my wife is, you know, uh, she's got her head down the sink I have to go say but if it's just like my wife is having a really bad day and I need to they're just not given that option so I think that that would be a really exciting move and I'm pleased to sit in the New York Times because um the US are appalling with maternity maternity leave apart from even paternity leave I mean most women take six weeks to three months which is considered a fallacy here um Anyway, I really look forward to reading that piece. Who did she write it for? The Guardian. Cool. Okay, I'll check that out. Finally, I listened to and loved Sloane Crosley on Longform. Longform, I've mentioned before, it's an utterly, utterly terrific podcast series which interviews mainly American writers on the art of long-form writing. So it interviews journalists, interviewers, essayists. I've recommended before... John Ronson's episode, Elizabeth Gilbert's episode, Taffy Brodessa Ackner's episode. It's a really great series. So my heart jumped when I saw Sloane Crosley come up on my podcast app. 
Sloane Crosley, for anyone who doesn't know her, she wrote a collection of essays in 2008 called I Was Told There'd Be Cake, which I loved and really was kind of the most definitive, I think, of those essay collections. She wrote another book last year that I've been trying to find on my shelves while you were talking. Was it The Clasp? Yes. Yeah, she then wrote The Clasp, which is a novel which was um, about a group of university friends coming back together in their 30s. And she now has another essay collection called Look Alive Out There, which my friend Lauren told me about. She tipped me off about the um, interview on Longform because she's also a huge fan of hers. And she said that the essay collection is utterly phenomenal. And I really liked I Was Told There'd Be Cake. It was a great inspiration for me in my kind of mid-twenties in my own journalism and writing. Um, But I did feel when I read it that there was a slight coldness to her prose and to her voice, which was one of the joys of reading it. There was a kind of observational detachedness to her writing. And she actually says in the interview that something she finds interesting is that often when she meets people in real life they're expecting her to be far more caustic than she actually is so it's obviously just a life that her voice takes in the written word but apparently this essay collection she's 40 now and it addresses things like um freezing your eggs apparently is the most powerful uh essay in the collection she said it's just really powerful and actually much more emotional than i was told there'd be cake so uh, i can't wait to read that and she was just so eloquent and so funny on long form and she talks about her move from working in publishing to uh being on the other side of it as an author all the various issues that she's had along the way a fascinating story about the fact that she cancelled a book deal because she had a difficult relationship with the editor and kind of I think gave the money back and HarperCollins tried to sue her um which is it was just an interesting debacle to listen to she's um fascinating on the subject of writers and public profiles and uh publicity and what that whole kind of circus is like but the bit that I would like to insert here is when she's talking about how there's this kind of modern attitude towards writers and creators that if they're not um doffing their cap to the most serious and pressing news stories of our time then we assume that they're not interested in them and how she urges us to ignore that as a pressure and how sort of pathetic it is and how we need to be able to have space in commentary no matter what's going on in the world for light entertainment light relief and maybe even just observation and description comedy and conversation around things other than the most pressing news stories so i have a friend who will remain nameless who published a book of essays a while ago and she I think she was a little uneasy with the topic which was not particularly rarefied it just wasn't particularly relevant I guess or or what's deemed socially or twitter level relevant and in her writing she would say you know I know it's not Syria but and I remember reading a draft and taking, you know, not all of them, but a bunch of them out. Because I'm like, first of all, no one in their right mind is coming to you for Syria information. <laughs> you know, it's not. That's their fault. This is ridiculous. I was like, second of all, you're hemming and hawing. And like part of the, the humor and the impact is to say, you know, that real estate agent is the worst person to have ever lived. Right? Everybody is aware that 
Hitler also happened. <laughs> Nobody is questioning it. It's part of the style. And it, it just sort of, I felt like she had been gotten to by the internet. What have you been enjoying, Panda? I've been watching some of the new Black Mirror. Have you seen any? Do you know, I nearly dipped into it this weekend, but I was just feeling so doomy. I just thought I couldn't take more doom. I know, it's, it's quite a risky thing to watch on a Sunday. I watched, I actually came to it because I wanted to see Andrew Scott in Smithereen because I just watched him on Graham Norton. So I went and watched that one where he plays a, not an Uber driver, but a sort of Uber driver. Yeah. Um, who takes a employee of Smithereen, which is like a social media company, yeah. hostage. And then you find out why. It is, it's got moments of brilliance, but it's definitely held together by Andrew Scott. Right. And it's very long. Mm. Um, it, at 70 minutes, that's quite long for a kind of very singular mm. narrative, I think, especially mm. when a lot of it is sort of a hostage scene. I then went and watched another one called Rachel, Jack and Ashley 2, which stars Miley Cyrus as oh a pop star called Ashley who is seeking to break out of the shackles imposed on her by her aunt and manager. You know, she wants to be a sort of, like, Nickelback singer, not a... Um, poppy. Poppy singer. Yeah. And so she basically... A kind of Google Home version of her called Ashley 2 comes out. And when Ashley goes... When the real Ashley goes into a coma... Um, her brain is downloaded onto the Google Home. So what she's actually... I don't know if I can take more brains being downloaded, all that stuff. Um, Sorry. I thought it was is it good? Really, I thought it was really good. Our friend Stuart Heritage thought it was a bit of a dud. Um, <laughs> I thought it was really good. Is she, is she good? Yeah, she is really good because she's an actor as much as she is a yeah. musician. Anyway, I thought that was really good. And I think there's three, so I'll go watch the uh, other one. Florence Welch wrote an essay for um, British Vogue on self-sabotage that I found very touching and I think you'd love Dolly it's called You Do Not Beat Your Own Heart and it describes her search for oblivion through alcohol and drugs and her struggle with an eating disorder in her teens and 20s and her subsequent recovery from those illnesses and impulses which she looks back now at in a seasick way she writes she's admiring at times of her feral nature she calls it but she's able to see now that she was able to push boundaries because I wasn't very fussed about whether I came back alive. She writes, partying was, I felt, a defining feature of my personality. Good at singing, good at drinking, good at taking drugs. Note, if you think you are good at taking lots of drugs, it usually means you are not good at it and will have to stop eventually. <laughs> very true. Yeah. And she goes on to say how her younger self might be horrified at her Friday nights now, eating pasta and watching TV with someone who's nice to me. Um, and it ends with her saying, most of the friends that I drank with have had to stop. They wash up one by one like driftwood. And we stand together on the shore in shocked relief. We cook, we talk, we work. People have started having children and going to bed early. All that boring grown-upness that we rejected then seems now somehow rebellious. It is an act of rebellion to remain present, to go against society's desire for you to numb yourself, to look away. But we must not look away. I adore Florence Welch. I, have that too, I think you'll really, Thank really you love so that. Much. I love. I want her to write more. I, I love her songs. I love her writing. I think she's a poet. I know that for many people, she represents a sort of fey hedonism, whimsical, posh girl in a vintage kimono. But I have to say. I'm all in for it. I think her writing is so beautiful and I think she is so beautiful and I would be very happy if one day I'm described as a, like, cut-price Tesco Florence Welch. 
<laughs> I hope she writes more essays. Yeah, me too. It's a really beautiful piece of writing. Professor of Human Evolutions at Duke University called Herman Ponser announced last week on NPR radio that giving birth is the ultimate test of endurance, even more than completing the Tour de France. So to celebrate, I read a piece by the journalist Nell Frizzell for The Guardian last year on giving birth. Love that piece. Beautiful and honest and really poetic. Um, absolutely. Even though I had a very different birth to her, there's elements that just really resonate. And it manages to be really inclusive, which is almost impossible yeah. at birth, because giving birth is sort of like living a life. Like, yeah. It's a, a myriad experience. That's impossible. That's what's so beautiful about her writing on motherhood, I think, is that it's um, so specific to her experiences, but also so unjudgmental of others. I just wanted to read an extract here. Childbirth feels like everything to everyone. Wolves gnawing at your entrails, blue medical hairnets, a thundering ocean, white noise, Sandwiches in plastic packets, teeth-chattering nerves, the ripping apart of your pelvis like tectonic plates, the click and drip of machinery, lightning down your spine, the pale blank hum of a hospital light, the onion sweat of animals, panic, darkness, exhaustion, a mist that becomes hail, leaving your body, believing in your body, a beleaguered body, a body pulled from your body. Poetry. Mm. I'll link it in the show notes. Very powerful. And the last thing I really enjoyed, which I thought would just make you laugh, Dolly, was Amanda Hess on The Wife Guy for The New York Times. Amanda Hess does a kind of short-form podcast for The New York Times. She's been doing it for a few years. I feel like I've talked about it before. Yeah, you have. Called Internetting. Yeah. So this piece is about um, Curvy Wife Guy. So that was Robbie Tripp who Instagrammed a picture of his wife and wrote, I love this woman and her curvy body. And there was a lot of... I feel like he wrote a piece about it. I went nuts about it. I'm so (laughs) angry about it. And he wrote, this gorgeous girl I married fills out every inch of her jeans and is still the most beautiful one in the room. Um, But did you know he's uh, dropped a music video? Oh, Christ. It's called Chubby Sexy. It features his curvy wife, quote unquote. Living my best life. What Amanda Hess says, which I loved, is that he, Robbie Tripp has created something bigger than himself. He is pioneering, she says, a whole new online ethnographic group, one at the centre of a deeply ambivalent state of heterosexual coupling in America. Wife guys. So these... She's so right and I cannot bear them. These are guys that are like posting about their wife, Mm. essentially, um, to show how how beta and feminist they are. Well, she says he's crafting a whole persona about being that guy. He married a woman and now that is his personality. And she says, wife guy exists at the intersection of relationship status and influencer branding. (laughs) Um, And she also says, you know, what explains the current proliferation of wife guys? She says it used to be that if you were a man, having a wife was a default position. But as Americans increasingly postpone, simply forego marriage, having a wife is now one choice among many. So in a way, it it signifies progression because it's this idea that having a wife is not just, you know, Don Draper mad men, something to have rather than to hold. It's something to cherish. But of course, he's sort of toting her like... She's a handbag. I can't bear it. I wrote a column about this years ago when I was covering Claudia Winkleman and it was off the back of this story of this guy. And it's somehow using this woman and the love that he has for this woman. And, oh God, what a martyr because he's managed to fall in love with a woman who isn't a size eight. That somehow that is like evidence of his own like towering feminist morals. I can't, I just, I can't, I can't 
That lyric where he says his chubby, sexy wife keeps him up all night, do you think that conflates, like, insatiability with chubbiness? That's, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. I just yeah, thought I'd stoked your fire of him. Yeah, you should piss me off even more. Well done. <laughs> Support for the Hilo comes from Regenerate Enamel Science. Regenerate Enamel Science is the first system that can regenerate tooth enamel mineral. 80% of common teeth problems such as sensitivity and yellowing can be caused by enamel erosion and acid attacks. And one of the major misconceptions is that erosion occurs only due to unhealthy diets such as sugary drinks and junk food. In fact, even fruit can cause acid erosion. Years of research in Regenerate Enamel Science laboratories has resulted in a three-step oral care regime consisting of an advanced toothpaste, advanced enamel serum and advanced foaming mouthwash. So snazzy, that serum for your teeth. The packaging of it is very snazzy as well. Designed to reverse the early enamel erosion process, Regenerate restores your Nash's mineral content and micro-hardness. For many of us, a lot of effort goes into our beauty regimes for hair and skin, but not so much for our teeth. I'm obsessed with teeth. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't, but now I do. And now everyone else can love their teeth too, Pandora. Just head down to a local boot store to discover Regenerate Enamel Science and the power behind healthy-looking teeth. It's our favourite toothpaste for ensuring that our gnashes look healthy and fresh. To learn more about the science, please visit regeneratenr5.co.uk. Thank you very much to Regenerate Enamel Science for supporting our podcast and helping our smiles dazzle. We're in the middle of Gay Pride Month. Across the world, LGBTQ plus communities are holding events, raising awareness, coming together, campaigning and celebrating. But this week, a completely ridiculous campaign has launched by an American men's group called Super Happy Fun America, proposing a straight pride parade. They applied for a permit to hold the parade in Boston to celebrate the diverse history, culture and contributions of the straight community. Men behind the event include John Hugo, who was the Republican candidate for Massachusetts' 5th Congressional District in the 2018 midterm election. On the organisers' website, Hugo is quoted as saying... Straight people are an oppressed majority. We will fight for the right of straights everywhere to express pride in themselves without fear of judgment and hate. An oppressed majority, that's an interesting concept. Another organiser, Mark Sahadi, is a member of a group called Resist Marxism, which in 2018 held a free speech rally that was outnumbered by counter demonstrators. The organisers have just announced that far right poster boy, surprise, surprise, Milo Yiannopoulos, who is openly gay, would be Boston's Straight Parade's Grand Marshal. I was wondering what he was up to. Initially, Super Happy Fun America declared on their website that Brad Pitt has been adopted as a mascot for the parade and congratulated him for being the face of this important civil rights movement. Pitt has ordered for his name and image to be removed. I'm not surprised. The story is almost too ridiculous to be discussing, but given the political climate at the moment, I think it is worth thinking about how they interlink. What did you think when you first read this story? Riveted how uh, straight people are oppressed riveted it's all very monster raving loony party and given the assaults on gay people in the last week alone in the uk um it just seems laughable it is john's obviously insane it is laughable twitter's reaction to the idea of a straight pride has been a major silver lining in this fairly depressing story congresswoman alexandria ocasio-cortez tweeted what would folks march in socks with sandals on dad jeans actor chris evans wrote 
Wow, cool initiative, fellas. Just a thought. Instead of straight pride parade, how about this? The desperately trying to bury our own gay thoughts by being homophobic because no one taught us how to access our emotions as children parade. What do you think? Two on the nose? The straight pride parade memes are fantastic. One of our favourites is um, from Hillary for Queens 2.0. To those of you celebrating straight pride, remember your flag colours and what they mean. Then there's an image of the shades of khaki. Green beige khaki, British khaki, tan, pebble and tape. On a pair of very, very basic khaki trousers. (laughs) I think all those memes and the tweets are great, particularly as it takes the onus off this as a news story or some huge movement, which it just isn't. It's a bunch of right-wing morons haphazardly trying to organise themselves for a completely pathetic event that... I'm very sure won't come off. But why we thought it was worth flagging is that along with some incredibly upsetting news stories of hate crime against gay people in Britain this week, it shows why gay pride is perhaps more important now than ever. The first was a story of an incident that happened last month on a London bus when a lesbian couple returned home after a night out. Melania Geminat was left with a suspected broken nose while her girlfriend Chris was also beaten up. The couple said they were sat at the front on the top deck because they enjoyed the novelty of the double-decker bus. However, during the journey, a gang of young men behind them saw they were a couple and started to demand they kiss while making crude sexual gestures. When they refused, they were robbed and beaten up. A harrowing photo of the two women has been circulating online of their bloodied and bruised faces shortly after the attack. Five suspects have been arrested. And in Southampton, two actors were attacked on their way to a theatre performance. Lucy Jane Parkinson and Rebecca Bantvala were appearing in Rotterdam, which tells the story of a young gay woman at Southampton's NST campus. The theatre company said they were left hugely shaken after an object, possibly stones, were thrown at them on Saturday afternoon. Two performances of the play were cancelled as a result. I spoke to Amelia Abraham, journalist and author of the brilliant new book Queer Intentions, which is part investigation and partly drawing on her own experiences, both funny and urgent, on what it is to be queer today. Why do you think the suggestion of straight pride has come about now? I mean, my first reaction is, was, you know, oh, maybe this is quite funny or quite good because it's sort of a, what we might call a fear of a queer planet. Like more and more people are identifying statistically as something other than totally straight, um, especially young people. So I think that creates a bit of um, insecurity that at some point, like everyone's going to be running around being LGBTQ+. Um, But then I think when you really look at the news um, and you really read about the straight pride, you can see that the guys that are planning it um, are sort of like far right affiliated and they hold a lot lot of other or go to a lot of other slightly worrying protests like anti-gun control protests and stuff like that. so it is it's sort of more linked to a general right wing approach, I think. So that that's when you start to think, oh, this is actually a little bit more worrying. Is it something that we should worry about in 2019, particularly paired with the hate crimes against gay people in Britain in the news in the last week? Are we regressing? Yeah, I think there should be a fear of that because we we actually are. And if you look at what specifically in America, where Trump is literally rolling back rights for transgender people um the law there is regressing and when it comes to how lgbtq people are treated you know there was his draft bill um which was sort of defined sex as something you know that you, you can't change um sex and gender and then also 
um, sort of reinstating don't ask, don't tell in the military for trans people. So rights in some ways are regressing. Um, I think with the, the crimes in, in Britain that we've seen over the last like week or two, um, which really upset me, sort of, like I really sort of cried when I read about the two girls on the bus in London. Um, but I think the reason I cried is because I wasn't like totally surprised, you know, mm. have a lot of friends that um, have been attacked in London in one way or another for being LGBTQ. A friend of mine who's a drag queen was attacked on their own doorstep violently recently. Two girls I know had a pint poured over their head in the London pub because they were kissing. Um, so I think these things just happen, but it, you know, it takes for them to make the headlines for everyone to sort of um, be collectively outraged. And I think, um, yeah, I think I think they happen, and I think they happen more than we we think. You know, there is a statistic from Stonewall that says a lot of these crimes don't get reported because LGBT people are so used to these kinds of things happening, and I think that's really really depressing and worrying. Do you feel more vulnerable as a gay woman at Pride and do you feel more vulnerable in general off the back of these stories? I think this co-option of Pride generally by this like far-right group or by this like, people like what, think we need a straight Pride sort of reminds us why we need to think about why Pride began, which is like mm-hmm. as a protest for people who were oppressed and sadly are obviously still oppressed. Um so I think it makes me feel like I would want to go to Pride even more this year um, in protest, though, not so much to party. I think it's so important to remember that while these stories have received so much coverage, possibly because they've come to light during Pride Month, that this sense of constant and often fatal danger by dint of just being you is a daily threat to so many LGBTQ plus people. And as Amelia said, incidents of this kind happen all the time many of which go unreported, which is why the very notion that heterosexuality should be defended and celebrated in the same way as as being gay is, is just so laughable. I think what Amelia elucidates on is the increasing politicisation of sexuality, and that's something that historically has always been the case, but that we were starting to untangle and it's all a sort of extension of one another like restricting abortion comes from that same right-wing agenda as restricting the freedom of the lgbtq plus community it all comes from this idea that you know a man and a woman should act a certain way and be a certain way and procreate a certain way and as she says those links between these people wanting to do you know a straight parade and being right wing can't be undermined because it's that kind of coalescing of those two states right now that is leading to a real rollback mm. of, of rights for so many people. The journalist Sophie Wilkinson wrote a piece for The Telegraph titled As Two Lesbians Are Attacked on a Bus, When Will Homophobes Learn We Aren't Their Playthings? In it, she talks about the ubiquitous pornification of lesbian identity that lurks at the heart of these misogynistic attacks. Being made to kiss for men's pleasure or even filmed while being affectionate with each other is all too familiar to me and my lesbian friends. At a festival during what should have simply been a reunion with an ex, a furtive kiss was met by a man shouting, do it again, kiss again, at us. He encouraged his friends to watch too. In that moment, our complicated existence was reduced to a simple, porny spectacle for someone else's pleasure. All we could do was disconnect and walk off, only feeling safe to kiss again when night fell. 
Lesbians might be represented on traditional media more than ever in shows like Gentleman Jack and films like The Favourite, but elsewhere in videos watched hundreds of millions of times, lesbian is the most searched genre on many porn sites. Yet I don't know any lesbian who watches mainstream renditions of lesbian porn. Set up from a male point of view, or with a man coming along to show the women how it's really done, these scenes encourage the notion that feminine lesbians are just another type of woman that exists for men's pleasure. No woman should be made to perform sexually against her will, and no homosexual person should be attacked for not dancing to the drum of homophobes. Until both horrible acts are stamped out of society, though, lesbians will continue to get the short end of two sticks. I think that's a very important piece, articulating the specificity of lesbian hate crimes as it is where misogyny and homophobia intersect. Sophie also tweeted a thread that I thought was incredibly interesting where she highlights the nuance of um, being a lesbian couple and also the nomenclature around it as opposed to being a gay couple. Um, She tweeted, lesbian couple in asterisks, beaten up for refusing to kiss. What happened here was atrocious and it would not happen to two gay men in the same way. Misogyny and homophobia conspire in a uniquely toxic way and it must be recognised for what it is. This tweet went viral. I retweeted it. I'm sure many other people retweeted it. And a lot of people replied and said... There was some really interesting conversation underneath. Um, Lots of people replied and said, well, gay men get beaten up too. This isn't something specific to um, lesbians. And she said, yes, absolutely. But it's important to refer to this as... As something that happens to lesbian women rather than to gay women so that we can see that nuance and that misogyny because rarely are gay men asked by straight men to kiss for their pleasure and I think that's where misogyny as you say comes into the homophobia and it's a really interesting point to consider and include in the conversations about homophobia because that is the two short ends of the stick mm. it's that they are women and it's that they are gay. I doubt that straight pride will be taking place and As these tragic stories remind us, heterosexuals should feel lucky that they have not endured historic violence, abuse and fear, which is the very reason why Pride came about in the first place. It was off the back of Stonewall. This is not just a party where lots of people drink and wear rainbow-coloured T-shirts. It has incredibly, incredibly important historic political roots. As the Hen and Stag segment last week made clear, I'd say we're still rewarded richly as a culture for straight marriage, so I don't think we need to worry about oppression on on that front. Former Minnesota State Senate candidate Sean Olson posted some words on Instagram that I thought would be salient to end this segment on. Gay pride was not born of a need to celebrate being gay, but the right to exist without persecution. Instead of wondering why there isn't a straight pride movement, be thankful you don't need one. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. rather than fake news this week when it was claimed that a 17-year-old Dutch teenager had been euthanised in the Netherlands. Noah Pothoven was known for her award-winning memoir detailing her struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, depression and anorexia in the wake of sexual assault and rape. At 16, she approached the Levans A&I or End of Life Clinic in The Hague to inquire about euthanasia, but her request was rejected. 
Last week, after years of battling mental illness, Noah announced on Instagram, in a post which has since been removed, that she had begun refusing all foods and liquids. I have not really been alive for so long, she wrote. I'm surviving and not even that. I'm still breathing, but I'm no longer alive. On Sunday, Dutch media reported that Noah had died in a hospital bed in her family's home in Arnhem after she stopped eating and drinking. But the story was falsely translated in publications such as the Daily Mail and Euronews that Noah had been legally euthanised. And in fact, when I first suggested this story for us to discuss today, I thought Noah had been assisted in her death. And I wanted to discuss how someone so young could be assisted in killing herself. Noah's death is a sad family tragedy and certainly in light of this error in translation she should not be used as the poster girl for teenage euthanasia but I think the response to this story sparks a twofold discussion on how much agency we allow people suffering from mental illness rather than physical in mandating their own death particularly an adolescent in the Netherlands you can apply to the end of life clinic from as young as 12 years old with parental permission so while Noah's death was not assisted it could have been and secondly, regardless of whether or whether it was euthanasia or not, should a teenage girl be allowed to starve to death without medical information, without medical intervention? I cannot but think of how many teenage girls might feel like their life is not worth living. Only two, with the right help, go on to live fruitful lives in adulthood. It's such a complicated issue and one that I find incredibly hard to judge or even speculate on as someone who very luckily has never had an active overwhelming inclination to no longer be here I can't imagine how torturous that sense of being trapped within one's own life is but equally I'm also obviously deeply saddened at the thought of a young woman being so traumatized that the only option of ease is death According to a report released in January by the World Health Organization, suicide is the second leading cause of death among 15 to 29 year olds globally and as we know it is the biggest killer in young men Carol Markovitz wrote in the New York Post, studies have shown that high-profile suicides lead to more suicides. Pothoven's death could easily have that same result. I wonder if Noah's death, particularly she was a semi-celebrity with a popular Instagram account, and as we know, teenagers are hugely influenced by social media, particularly when vulnerable, could cause a copycat effect. Almost 6,000 people liked, that feels like a really wrong word to use, her post about ending her life. I don't know. I feel very uncomfortable on that speculation because I think that suicidal inclination is so out of a person's control. I don't like the idea of of pointing the finger of blame of the potential effects of one person's mental state, even if it does happen in semi-public forum. I don't think that's their load to carry. I think we have to be able to look at the effect of a high-profile issue without it feeling like anyone is being blamed. And maybe we've got some way to go before we're able to do that without Mm. it feeling like it's um, specifically about, as you say, this young woman. Suicide contagion, however, is a very real thing, although it's often reported in a way that goes against the advice of the Samaritans, which can, of course, lead to scaremongering. Noah's death has prompted a lot of critical discussion. Speaking more broadly about euthanasia, an incredibly complex issue, as you say, Dolly, I think this is going to be an issue that we are confronted with more and more in life for a variety of reasons, namely that we are an ageing population. We also live in an increasingly secular world, which means that fewer people subscribe to the belief that your life and your destiny is in the hands of a higher Mm. being rather than your own. 
For example, in the case of the Catholic Church, suicide is considered sinful. So firstly, we've got people feeling like they've got more agency over their lives and they place less interest or stock by what their church would think. Pope Francis instantly tweeted about euthanasia on June the 5th. So this idea of life being in our own hands is more and more a modern cultural phenomenon, relationship. I think that makes sense. When we take life and death out of the hands of God and we examine the nature of it all uh, much more closely and without fear, our relationship to euthanasia will become less and less black and white, I think. To grapple and learn more about this moral conundrum, I'd really recommend an excellently thorough and well-researched Guardian long read on euthanasia published in January of this year called Death on Demand, Has Euthanasia Gone Too Far?, by Christopher de Belleg, where I learned a lot about the end-of-life clinic and the global momentum of legalising euthanasia. Uh, the first euthanasia was in 1984 in the Netherlands on a man dying of lung cancer. I just wanted to read this bit from the piece. As people got used to the new law, the number of Dutch people being euthanised began to rise sharply from under 2000 and 2007 to almost 6,600 in 2017. Around the same number are estimated to have had their euthanasia request turned down as not conforming with the legal requirements. Also in 2017, some 1,900 Dutch people killed themselves, while the number of people who died under palliative sedation, in theory succumbing to their illness whilst cocooned from physical discomfort, but in practice often dying of dehydration whilst unconscious, hit an astonishing 32,000. Altogether, well over a quarter of all deaths in 2017 in the Netherlands were induced. Wow. I think that's a really interesting point about what's happened in those 30 years since euthanasia Mm. became Mm. legal. Last January, a medical ethicist called Berner van Barsen resigned from one of the review boards in protest at the growing frequency with which dementia sufferers are being euthanised on the basis of a written directive that they are unable to confirm after losing their faculties. It is fundamentally impossible, she told the newspaper Trow, to establish that the patient is suffering unbearably because he can no longer explain it. Prosecutors are now preparing the first ever euthanasia malpractice case with three further cases currently under investigation. It involves a dementia sufferer who had asked to be killed when the time was right. But when her doctor deemed this moment to have come, the patient resisted and had to be both drugged and restrained before the fatal injection could be administered. A scene, as de Belleg puts it, of unutterable grimness even to read about. The doctor, kept anonymous for now, has said that she was fulfilling her lucid patient's request since her requests, once incompetent, are not relevant. The legality around this is incredibly complicated and I think really denotes the slippery slope of euthanasia. I can't get my head around that story. The idea of her being administered an injection against her will, everyone holding her down... However lucid she was or wasn't, euthanasia is illegal in the UK, obviously, although last month a British lawyer became the first known case to buy euthanasia drugs in Mexico and administer them himself in his flat in Manchester. Calvin Chapman killed himself in April last year after taking a lethal dose of a drug that's used in the US for executing convicted criminals but is illegal in the UK. Suicide tourism, where people travel abroad to buy drugs otherwise banned in the UK, is a growing concern. The drug that Chapman purchased is sold in pet shops to euthanise cats. Assisted suicide is legal in only a few places at the moment. Switzerland, Germany, the Netherlands and in the US states of Washington, Oregon, Colorado, Hawaii, Vermont, Montana, 
Washington DC and New Jersey starting in August 2019 and California. A law legalising euthanasia in the Australian state of Victoria will come into effect I think any minute now. There's a really, really good recent documentary that Louis Theroux did called Choosing Death, which is about the new laws for assisted suicide for the terminally ill in California. And I thought it was a very, very balanced and very real look at what that really means and looks like for the dying, the professionals assisting and the people who are left behind. As a warning, it is deeply upsetting i think it's probably the most upsetting lead through documentary i've watched but it also forces you to confront the utter misery of daily life and the future of those who who contemplate this seriously as an option some of it felt very uncomfortable and tragic and deeply sad in all honesty other moments felt very moving and and almost empowering um and i it was the closest i've got to seeing what it all actually looks like and and the stages of it for those who choose it, those who administer it and everyone around them. So I I do really recommend that. I'd love to see that. Just out of interest, how old, like roughly, were the people profiled on it? It was a different range. The one that was really focused on, which I think Louis Theroux himself has said in his most recent Adam Buxton interview, was one that felt... Beautiful is the wrong word, but it felt right. Was um, a man who was in his 70s who had a terminal illness, who had had a very, very full and very beautiful life. And, you know, that is a, a very harrowing moment of, of the programme because they actually film his death, which is a very long, protracted process, which is something that Louis Threw talks about in the documentary that I think people think that this kind of assisted death is a real snap thing and in a lot of cases it isn't um, and there are lots of decisions to be made at different points but all his family gathered around him his friends gathered around him and he'd asked them to open champagne and toast his life and play his favourite music and it all felt very loving so that type of euthanasia that scenario of euthanasia is not one that really terrifies and saddens mm. me because he had led a rich life and he had a terminal illness and so they could celebrate the life he's led I think where the falsely reported story of Noah or the Netherlands having a, an application as young as 12 is that these are not lives that have been led yet mm. there's still so many ways that those lives could be improved you would hope with the right medical intervention and I also think that does raise that argument of physical terminal illness versus mental Mm. illness and this you know how when you're not in your most lucid state Mm. I think I think I just find that story that you told a lot easier to metabolize than I would have heard I understand I understand it worries that's what worries me about the it's because I'm not against euthanasia per se but seeing what has happened in the Netherlands and hearing certain statistics and the whole kind of slippery slope potential for it is what really scares me. I don't want anyone to suffer through a life they can't tolerate. But I think if it came into legal, if it came to be legalised in the UK, I would hope that the parameters around it would be a lot stricter than in the Netherlands, particularly in the case of adolescents, where your emotional state is so changeable. 
I, I agree with you. And as I said, it is, it's a very difficult thing to talk about because the state that one must be in, and, you know, I have been close to and known people in those states, it's not something that that you can imagine if you've not been in it. So, you know, being imperious marshals of it, I do find difficult. But I think what you're saying, which I agree with when I read a lot of those stories is that what I'm desperate for is more resources to support and rehabilitate and nurture people. That's exactly who find themselves needed to be a last resort. Mm. That would be my hope and that is my fear that um it could go in a way that it's not a last resort. Mm. What do you all think of this complex issue? Do let us know your thoughts. very much for listening to the high low you can rate review and subscribe on itunes it helps other people find us and helps boost us in the charts you can email us the high low show at gmail.com or tweet us at the high low show bye 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 and if you've got dolly's passport just give it back please can i have my passport back thank you i always look on the bright side of life Always look on the light side of life If life seems jolly rotten There's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps Don't be silly chumps Just purse your lips and whistle That's the thing Hey